Hello again, everybody. Shalom, sabal khair. Greetings and welcome back to the second episode of the Israel Travel Podcast. I am one of your hosts, John, and I'm here with my co-host, the lovely Whitney, for another information-packed episode of the Israel Travel Podcast. For those of you just joining the Israel Travel Podcast for the first time by finding this episode, this is our second episode. You can go back and listen to the first one and hear our introductory episode about misconceptions when it comes to Israel, travel to and around Israel. But if this is your first episode, welcome. This is a standalone episode. You can listen to this one without listening to the first one and go back and listen to it later and not be missing anything. Israel Travel Podcast is your new source for information, insights, advice, reviews, recommendations about travel to and around Israel. We are basically trying to share our experience, our knowledge, our travels, our brains with all of you to help you better plan and prepare for your trip of a lifetime to this bucket list, incredible destination, Israel. With that, the second episode is going to be all about getting to Israel. Everybody dreams of going to Israel. Everybody wants to go visit the Holy Land. And almost every airline flies there, but not every airline. But there are some really important things to consider. Airlines that fly to Israel routes to get to Israel by air, what the best ones are, what the worst ones are, what to look out for, and other considerations when it comes to air travel to Israel. So I think, Whitney, the first thing we should probably start with is telling people something that is probably a little unusual to most people in most other countries. Israel, as we mentioned many, many times in our first episode, Israel is a very small country. Therefore, it has only one international airport. You don't have a lot of choices when it comes to where to fly to from outside of Israel to get to Israel. You have one choice, Ben Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv. It's actually a little bit outside of Tel Aviv, but it's called Tel Aviv International Airport, essentially. Ben Gurion International Airport. Airport code is TLV, but actually it's about halfway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, a little bit closer to Tel Aviv, but let's just say in between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. But that's pretty much your only choice if you want to fly into Israel. You can't fly into the north from outside the country. You can't fly into the south. You can't fly directly into Jerusalem, but you can get pretty close because Israel is pretty small. But that's the first thing I think people need to know about flying to Israel is that there's only one airport. So you can't go wrong and you can't get lost and you can't fly to the wrong airport. All very reassuring to everybody. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. So with that, Whitney and I want to actually share some of our opinions, thoughts, advice on the many different ways you can get to Israel by air, the airlines, the routes, connections, timing of flights when they land. We talked a lot in the last episode about considerations for arriving into Israel and things like, uh, you know, Shabbat beginning and which day is not, which is good to fly into Israel, but things you have to consider if you fly in there certain days. So now let's sort of back up and talk about the many different airline options for getting to Israel by air. Actually, let me just ask you this, Whitney, to start off with. When we're talking about airlines, we're going to talk about a bunch of them today. We have lots of opinions on airlines. Whitney and I travel a lot. I'm sure you do, Whitney. I'm sure you have opinions like I do. Oh, yeah. Big on opinions over here. So we will share ours. But let me just sort of first start with asking you, Whitney, what airline alliance are you loyal to? What do you fly? What's your favorite airline alliance? And is that what you flew to Israel last time? Yes. So my husband and I are very loyal to the Star Alliance. We find that we can get anywhere we want to go 
pretty much just about on the Star Alliance and our loyalty is with United, which has a hub at Dulles, which is our home airport here in DC, the DC area. So I did fly United to Israel. They do have a nonstop from Dulles, which was really great for me, not having to make a connection. But that said, you shouldn't be afraid of connections. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But John, what is your favorite alliance? And within that alliance, who do you fly the most? Well, I'm a little bit complicated when it comes to that because I am sort of, I'm American, obviously, but I'm, I live in Spain. I work in Egypt. So I'm kind of based in three different, well, two different locations, really. But I'll say when I am in America, when I used to live in America, when I'm traveling to America or when I'm based there, I was always a Sky Team guy. So I flew Delta everywhere. I'm sure you know, when you build up status, it's really hard to let that go. When you can get a free upgrade, it's really hard to let that go, especially on international routes. So I am most familiar with Sky Team, but honestly, I've flown almost every airline, at least in the Western world. And I'm very familiar with all of them. But I'll tell you that why I say that that answer is complicated is because in America, I'm a Sky Team guy. But when it comes to, you know, when I'm in Egypt and I'm traveling or when I'm in Europe and I'm traveling, I, for example, love Turkish Airlines. I love, not that I can always afford to fly them, but Etihad and Emirates. There are some Gulf or Middle Eastern Airlines that are among the top two or three in the world. And so if you get the chance to fly, for example, Emirates first or business class, Etihad first or business class, Turkish Airlines business class, these are experiences not to be missed. And lucky for us now, and actually, why don't we go ahead and broach this subject? The fact that we're even talking about Emirates and Etihad Airlines being an option to fly to Israel is a very, very new thing. For those of you that don't know, Israel has only had a peace treaty with two of its neighbors, essentially two of its regional neighbors for the past couple of decades. Egypt and Jordan have had peace treaties with Israel for a couple of decades. Turkey actually is on good terms with Israel as well. So Turkish Airlines flies there. But the other airlines in the Middle East region, especially in the Arab world, have not had good diplomatic relations with Israel until recently. And so some of the best airlines in the world, like Emirates, and Etihad from Abu Dhabi, Emirates obviously from Dubai, have not had flights to Israel until very, very recently. So for those of you who follow the news and have heard of the Abraham Accords that brought about peace treaties with four additional Arab countries with Israel, that opened up a huge door, not only for Israeli investment in those countries like Bahrain and Emirates, but for those airlines from those countries to start service to Israel. So now you can fly Emirates, you can fly Etihad, Turkish Airlines. Ever since 1990, well, the 90s, when Jordan had a peace treaty with Israel, you could fly Royal Jordanian, which is another very good Middle Eastern airline. You could fly Egypt Air because Egypt had a peace treaty with Israel since 1979, 80, 81, around there. You could fly Egypt Air. That's another story. I'll get into that later. You could fly Egypt Air, but actually, in another big development, Egypt Air recently, how do you say this, kind of like came out of the closet in terms of its airline service to Israel. Actually, Whitney, do you know about the secret flight to Israel from Egypt? Have I ever told you about that? No, but I need to know. Okay, this is actually a really good story. So when Israel and Egypt signed a peace treaty, one of the terms of the peace treaty was that they had to have direct air service between the two capitals every day. So Israel had no problem implementing this 
part of the peace treaty, but Egypt, because of the sort of the popular opinion in the street in Egypt, was still not supportive of this at the time. This is 30 years ago. Egypt Air, which is Egypt's national carrier, did not want to implement service to Tel Aviv, but they had to, according to this peace treaty. So what they did instead was they created, they spun off a subsidiary airline called Air Sinai. The only purpose of this airline was to run this daily flight between Cairo and Tel Aviv and have it not branded Egypt Air. It was branded Air Sinai. However, it flew on unmarked planes from secret gates at Cairo International Airport, and you could not buy a ticket on it easily. You could, but it was like legend among the aviation geek, aviation enthusiast community. This airline, the secret flight between Cairo and Tel Aviv was legend for years. You had to go to a nondescript unmarked office for Air Sinai in Cairo, pay only cash to buy a paper ticket to get a seat on this flight. You had to go to the airport. There were no check-in counters labeled for Air Sinai. You had to ask around until someone finally told you where to go. There were no gates, no signs. It was not on the departures board. You had to find someone who would have pity on you and tell you where the flight was departing from. And then you could use your paper ticket that you paid cash for at the unmarked office in Cairo to get on this unmarked, completely white, unmarked plane that would fly daily from Cairo to Tel Aviv. And so this is how Egypt complied with the terms of its peace treaty with Israel of having daily air service between the two capitals without officially having an Egypt Air flight to Tel Aviv or even having Tel Aviv on Egypt Air's route map. So actually, Egypt Air finally just said, screw it, and got rid of the secret flight and made a daily Egypt Air branded flight to Tel Aviv only about a year ago. And I was actually, as much as that's wonderful, as much as I'm glad that they're moving beyond their squabbles and peace is becoming even more out in the open between these two countries, I was actually a little annoyed because I always wanted to take the secret flight to Israel from Egypt on this unmarked plane. So I never got to because it was just unannounced. Just one day that Egypt Air just finally said, we're doing away with the secret flight. We now fly to Tel Aviv. You can book a ticket on our website. So I've actually taken that flight now from Cairo to Tel Aviv on Egypt Air, which is great that they now do that. But yeah, they don't have the secret flight anymore. So I'll never get that experience of flying on the secret unmarked lane between Cairo and Tel Aviv. You didn't know about that? You never heard about that? No. And that is every shade of shady. And I have <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> so I need to know how many people were on this flight? Did they just cancel the flight because nobody showed up? Because nobody no. knew about it. No, they couldn't. Like, what happened with that? They couldn't. It was a treaty obligation. They had to run the flight every day at a loss. Even if it was to, empty. Even if it was empty. And actually, so I read some travel blogs over the years about people who figured out how to get on it and got a ticket on it. And they said that there would be like a couple of businessmen on it, maybe like anywhere from, I don't know, the couple of blogs I read where the bloggers took the flight, they said there were maybe 20 people on the flight. And this is maybe a flight, a plane that has, maybe they had like 180 seats or something on the plane. It was a sizable jet, but they had to run the service to comply with the peace treaty. And so they would run this thing every day. Well, that's too bad. You never got to take the unmarked plane, but they'll bring it back. Maybe they'll but, bring it back for you. Actually, you know what? Now that you say that, you know what? Here's another twist. So technically, I have flown on that unmarked plane. I don't know if you've seen on my Instagram stories from time to time. I posted a couple of times in the past six months or so flying on the secret unmarked plane. So now Egypt Air, they have two planes that used to run this route unmarked. They were quote unquote Air Sinai, wink, wink. But they have them in Egypt Air's regular service now on their on their random routes. And so once in a while, I fly Egypt Air domestically a lot and regionally a lot sometimes too. Once in a while, one of those unmarked planes will get assigned to a route. And I've been on the plane a couple of times, but I never got to fly the 
secret flight to Tel Aviv on the plane. And I never will. Why would they not? Why would they not put their livery on it at this point? I've wondered that too. I don't know, but they still, I mean, we see them at Cairo airport all the time. I don't know why they don't paint them, but maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it is advantageous for them for some reason to still have unmarked plane because most airlines could never get away with having an unmarked plane. Maybe they consider it like a, you know, an advantage to be able, they can fly, I don't know, they can fly into Sudan or they can find somewhere and nobody knows. I have no clue why they don't paint them as Egypt air, but they're still out there. They're still unmarked. They're completely white. They look like some super VIP jet. And that's why I posted on Instagram. I'm like, oh, I'm flying on the unmarked plane again. And guess where I'm going? Yeah. And people think I'm flying with like the president of Egypt or something, where really I'm just flying to like the Red Sea. Almost as good. (laughs) Flying to the Red Sea is almost as good as flying with the president, I think. So anyway, yeah, just a little side note there. Egypt Air now flies to Tel Aviv, just like Turkish Airlines flies there, just like Etihad based in Abu Dhabi flies there now, just like Emirates Airlines out of Dubai flies there now. There are some really, really good options for flying into Tel Aviv on great airlines. Now, you do have to make a connection, of course. If you fly, if you're coming from Europe or the US and you fly Etihad, Turkish Airways, Emirates, Egypt Air, something like that, you do have to make a connection in those hubs. But like Whitney mentioned, there are a lot of direct options, direct flight options for getting from North America or Europe to Israel, to Ben Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv. So Whitney, actually, why don't you tell us what are some of the direct flight option routes? You mentioned United's direct flight from Dulles. Where else do you know of that flies direct to Tel Aviv from the United States? United flies nonstop from the United States to Israel from Chicago, DC, Newark, and San Francisco. So you have several options there within the Star Alliance. And Delta, I know also, they fly nonstop from Atlanta, Boston, and JFK in New York City. There's several flights from JFK on a variety of airlines, as you might imagine. But you can also get there on American, Air Canada flies from Montreal and Toronto. And El Al, which is the Israeli airline, flies from JFK and Newark, as well as Boston, LA, and Miami. So you have plenty of options to go nonstop. It just depends on what your budget is, how the timing works out for you. Timing can be a little bit tricky flying to the Middle East from the United States. So that's also something to consider. But if you're loyal to a particular airline, probably they or one of their alliance members will fly nonstop if you need a nonstop flight. Yeah, certainly all of the American carriers are going to have at least one, if not a couple of nonstop flights from their hubs in the United States to Israel. Now, this is where I'm going to really early on in the episode tread into some hot water, potentially. I have not heard good things about El Al. Like Whitney mentioned, El Al is Israel's national airline. If you've ever been to an airport and seen the plane with the blue stripes on the tail, with the Star of David on the tail in blue, that's, you know, of course, the Israeli flag. If you see like a waving version of the Israeli flag on the back on the tail of the plane, that is El Al. I have not heard good things about that. Do you know anyone who's ever flown El Al? I've never flown it. I'm sure I know people who have flown it. I have never heard anything bad about it, but I ha- it hasn't really been on my radar because they're not in the Star Alliance and it is hard to break up with an alliance <laughs> when alliance members go where you want to go. So I have not actually heard anything, I guess, good or bad necessarily about LL. What have you heard? Certainly not in terms of safety. No, actually, the exact opposite. As LL, I'm sure, is one of the most secure airlines yeah. in the world because Israel is the best at security in the world, especially airport security. 
We'll get into that later. That's a whole other topic. They are the best in the world at that. But the things that I've heard about El Al, I've known people who've flown it. I know a lot of travel bloggers who have reviewed it. And the thing that people complain about when it comes to El Al is the service, the food, things like that. Israel only has one international airline, and that is El Al. And any country that only has one option for a national airline, they don't have much competition. I mean, of course, they have competition from other countries' carriers who fly there. But when you live there, kind of like the same concept with us, when we live in a city, Whitney, you live in D.C., Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. is the hub for, is the headquarters for United. Actually, is it headquartered in D.C. or Chicago? It's headquartered in Chicago, but D.C. is a major hub. Yeah, so Dulles is a major hub for United. Atlanta is where the headquarters of Delta is, a hub for Delta. It's hard when you live in that place, and that's the major airline in and out of that place, not to have to fly that airline, whether it's for loyalty or for cost reasons, things like that. And El Al is the only Israeli airline that flies internationally. So a lot of people don't have a choice in terms of, you know, unless they want to kind of downgrade. But I don't know, anytime you have a country or a city that only has one or very few options, tend to don't have to try too hard to compete. Yeah, you kind of get what you get and you just have to kind of take it. And I will say the thing about El Al, if you've heard stuff about the food, is probably because it's all kosher. You're not going to have bacon. You're not, you know, there's not going to be sausage with your breakfast. So that might be what people think is a problem with LL's food is that it complies with kosher because it's a Jewish airline. When I fly to Israel, I prefer to fly, like I said, Turkish Airlines is one of my favorite airlines to fly around Europe and the Middle East. I have flown Egypt Air to Israel before. I've flown, actually, I've flown United from Tel Aviv to Newark. I've flown Delta in and out of Tel Aviv. I've flown quite a few airlines there. I haven't flown on a lot of these, but when I've been at Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, I've seen on the runway many discount carriers from Europe who fly in and out of Tel Aviv. Actually, I did. Whitney, when I was last there with you a couple of months ago, I flew out from Tel Aviv back to Spain on Voiling Airlines, which is a Spanish airline based in Barcelona that's a discount airline. And I think my flight was only like 60 or 90 euros. It was really cheap. But there are a lot of discount airlines from Europe that fly in and out of Israel, things like Wizz Air, EasyJet, Voiling, Ryanair, you know, cheap airlines mm-hmm. like that. So you can get really, really cheap, affordable fares to Tel Aviv, even though it is a long haul destination for most of us. What was, Whitney, you, I'm going to put you on the spot now. You're here. Did you fly business last time into Tel Aviv? I got the impossible upgrade that honestly, I'm in this United 1K global services group on Facebook. And I went on and I asked, I was like, I put in all my plus points. I you know, paid the right fare class. What are the odds that I'm actually going to get this business class seat? They call it Polaris on United. And everybody was like, oh no, just pay for it. Just pay for business. And it's like a $10,000 ticket to buy into business, at least at the time when I was going. <laughs> and John was actually on Zoom with me when my upgrade came through. (laughs) So I did get to fly business class on United to Tel Aviv nonstop from Dulles. And it was magical and it was wonderful. And I slept. I do not sleep sitting up. So being in a lay flat seat was truly a miracle for me and a blessing. Oh, that was Um, the flight that you were, you were cheering and and screaming about. We were on Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that that was the one I called my husband over. I'm like, look, look, I got my upgrade on the way back. However, I was schlepping it in economy with everybody else. So, <laughs> so I have done both. I have done 
business class, which was wonderful. And I have done economy class, which was typical airline economy class on long haul. My best tip is to bring your compression socks (laughs) so that your feet don't swell up because that can be really painful. So yes, I have seen the dark side and the light side of nonstop travel to Israel. Yeah, that I mean, when you talk about long haul travel, that really is a long haul because even from the East Coast, that is at least, what was it, an 11-hour flight? I think it was 11 hours there and 11 hours and 40 minutes back, so almost 12 hours back. And coming from the West Coast, you know, they go up and over, so it's not 20 hours, but it's it's even longer than 11 that it was from Dulles. Yeah, it's it's a little bit different than traveling to Europe. I mean, going to the Middle East, even though Israel is on the Mediterranean, it is on sort of the Western side of the Middle East, it is still a long haul flight. So picking an airline that you are going to be comfortable with. Honestly, I am a fan of, I tell people this all the time when it comes to travel to Egypt, and I would say the same applies to Israel. I know it's going to sound a little, I don't know, spoiled or just whatever, but I think investing, not splurging, not spending investing in a business class ticket or at least an economy comfort ticket when you're traveling to the Middle East 10, 11, 12, 15 hours is a worthwhile investment. Save up. Consider that an investment in yourself. Consider an investment in your trip. I mean, you've waited a lifetime to go to a place like this. It's bucket list. You don't want to get there and be miserable. You don't want to be leaving there and dreading the return home. You want to be excited. You want to be relaxed. You want to be nostalgic, thinking about how amazing of time. Honestly, I think investing in a premium ticket for a destination like Israel is a worthwhile investment. I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit of a spoiled position, but the thing about it is you're spending five, six, seven thousand dollars on a substantive trip for a week, two weeks around a place like this. You've waited a lifetime to go. You can find good business class tickets to Israel for twenty five hundred dollars sometimes. I mean, if you find a deal, if you monitor the routes. You can find a $2,500, maybe $3,000 round trip business class ticket from the United States, from Canada. I think it's a worthwhile investment. Another option is just splurging a business class ticket to Europe. And then the trip from Europe to Tel Aviv can be like three or four hours. So maybe just do that portion in economy, splurge on the transatlantic portion, and then you arrive not too dead. You arrive refreshed. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's worth considering. It is totally worth considering. And I like your outside the box solution of paying for business to Europe and then taking an economy carrier down to Tel Aviv. Because honestly, there was no, absolutely no way that I was going to pay $10,000 even Mm -hmm. for a business class seat, even knowing how much nicer it would be. But would I pay $3,000 for business class both ways? So that's 22 hours of my life, you know? That's almost an entire day. Would it be worth it? You know, maybe, maybe not. Really depends on your budget, but it's worth considering. It's worth looking at deals. It's worth looking at the days before and after your ideal travel days. So maybe you want to go on a Saturday, but it's $500 cheaper to go on a Friday. A hotel for a night is less than $500. That's worth it to go a day early and have an extra day in Israel. So there's always things to consider. And I talk about this a lot in my blog, thinking of the outside the box solutions and finding what's going to work for you. And one of the things that you have to kind of consider is how do the planes go from your home airport? 
So my mom, just for instance, does not like to connect, but she loves to go to these like very far away places in Canada. And I'm like, mom, you're going to have to connect somewhere. I'll go with you. It'll be fine. You know, maybe a nonstop is not something that happens. My mom is based in Nashville. So there are no nonstops. I'm sorry, from BNA in Nashville to Tel Aviv does not exist yet. Maybe one day, but you know, if you already have to make a connection that can cut your ticket price by a lot. So flying from Nashville might actually be less expensive knowing that you have to connect either in Newark or just from Nashville, they do fly to London. So you could get your nonstop from Nashville to London and then take your low cost carrier down to Tel Aviv. So just thinking outside the box, thinking of how the planes go, thinking of whatever tricks you could possibly find either in blogs or whatever. It's worth finding flight deals. It's worth getting a business class ticket at a great deal. Just doing a little bit of legwork in advance to find those better deals. And speaking of blogs, I forgot, Whitney, what is your blog again? <laughs> well, that's not why I was mentioning it, but... I know, but I wanted to help you get... You were, you, were too, you were too modest and polite to give a shameless plug. So I wanted to prompt a shameless plug for you. And if you won't give it, I will give it, but I think you'll get it. Okay. <laughs> Shamelessly, my blog is quickwittravel.com. And I have... W-H-I-T, right? W-H-I-T. W-H-I-T, like Whitney, quickwittravel.com. And I have an entire page dedicated to air travel. So air travel tips. I have a post about what to do with a layover. If you've never done a layover before, I have a post about flying for beginners, you know, what to do if your flight is canceled. I have a lot of resources for you on quickwittravel.com. Thank you, John. I have to tell you, I have been to 7,000 countries, not as many as Whitney, but I've traveled all over the world. I run companies in multiple countries. I go to Whitney's blog. For example, if I'm going to a place I haven't been, she has, I go to her blog to check out what she said about it because she is so thorough at documenting the travel experience. And she's so dedicated. I'm serious. We're so dedicated to sharing advice and honest opinions and things like that with and outside the box ideas with people that I go check your, if like, there's been a couple of examples recently where I've gone to somewhere that you have been, and I think I've messaged you about it on WhatsApp, but then I'm like secretly going to check out your blog too. But um, no, it's seriously, it's a great, great, great resource. And you, you're, you're not just sort of pumping yourself up there. She's actually underselling herself. She has great resources on there for travelers and even not just destinations, but like topics and themes like airline travel, airports, things like that. So you're too shy to say it, but I'm not. There we go. <laughs> and now I'm blushing. So thanks. So for first time visitors, actually speaking of people who need resources, and that's that's a good transition to this because I wanted to bring this up on this episode because this is something that shocks some first time visitors to Israel, especially people who have not traveled a lot. Israel gets a lot of people who have not traveled a lot. If you don't have a craving to go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia, if you don't want to be swinging from the trees in you know the Central African Republic or something, you probably still want to go to Israel because it is the Holy Land. It is what it is for three different religions. And Israel gets a lot of people who are not very experienced at travel. And even for people who are, sometimes the experience of dealing with security at Ben Gurion Airport, where you go, usually you go into and out of when you visit Israel, sometimes can be a little bit jarring for people. So I wanted to mention that. I wanted to forewarn folks so that you're at least prepared mentally. I said earlier, Israel is the best at security 
in the world. That's one of the reasons why you are so safe when you go to Israel. They, like any country, like we at home in America, they have incidents. So do we. So does Europe. But Israel is one of the best countries, not one of, it is the best country in the world when it comes to security, security for its own citizens, security for visitors and tourists. And so one of the manifestations of that is that security at Ben-Gurion Airport, because it is Israel's only international airport, is very tight. And so going into Israel, when you land and enter the country at the airport, you probably won't see this. It's usually when you exit, when you've been there for a while, especially if you've traveled around, if you've gone all over the country, if you've gone into the West Bank, if you maybe you went to visit Jordan, maybe you came from Jordan and crossed the land border and came into Israel that way. If you're exiting out of Israel via the airport at Tel Aviv, Ben-Gurion International Airport, some people are surprised by the level of security that they encounter there, the questioning, the almost sort of like interrogating they get. But to be perfectly honest, this is for your own good. They're making sure people haven't given you something. You know, kind of in America, we laugh at these questions we get asked at the ticket counter when they're like, have you packed your own bags? Has anyone given you anything? And then and we're kind of like, no, no, no. In Israel, they're serious about this because somebody could not have given you something or slipped something in your bag one million times, but they're concerned about the one million and first time. So they actually are not, they take this stuff seriously. So don't be put off. Don't be scared. Don't be offended. If you get the second degree or third degree in questioning when you're leaving being an airport, it's for your own good. I promise I've had it. I've actually been there when I've gotten the fourth degree and I've been there when I've gotten the zero with degree. I think Whitney, when you were there last time, you said, I think I messaged you afterwards. And I was like, did you get the third degree? And you're like, no, they just let me waltz on through. What was your experience like when you left the other month? So I think I probably got the first degree. I certainly did not get the fourth, but I'm a very compliant person. I'm just a very compliant person. So, you know, I'm going to answer whatever question they ask me. I'm going to be honest. I might be too honest. They asked me about my last name, which is kind of an odd one. It's one of those made up names, you know, American made up name. It's O'Halleck. It is not Irish. There is a story about it. And the lady asked me about my last name, but she pointed to my maiden name, which is in my middle name. And so I'm like, well, you know, my last name is O'Halleck, but this one is my maiden name. Where did your name come from? And it's kind of a story, you know, (laughs) I'm like, okay, we're just going to tell the story. So I just told her, you know, and my husband's great grandfather was in the third grade. He lived in an Irish neighborhood and the teacher took out the C and put in an, an apostrophe and now it's O'Halleck. And after that, she just waved me through, but I'm like, holy crap. I don't, I don't, I don't know the etymology of this name. <laughs> like, I don't know what it was originally, but you know, I guess it just was an odd name. I don't know. Maybe I looked like somebody she wanted to poke at <laughs> whatever question they asked just answer it, answer it honestly. Don't be afraid. You know, they might check your bag or something, but you're probably fine. If you're not doing anything shady, you are probably fine. Yeah. That's the key to remember is, and I think anybody who's visiting Israel for you know religious reasons, for tourism, keep in mind, you're not doing anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. Even if they're questioning you, it's protocol. They ask you more things than we do back home. They go to greater lengths to make sure everybody is safe than we do back home. As much as we do, they do more. You just have to remember, just answer their questions, be honest. They're going to probe a little bit more than you might be comfortable with or used to, but it's for a reason because the people who may have come there in the past to do something bad, 
they can't pass these tests. You can. So, you know, I, I tell everybody like your first time in Israel, especially leaving can be a little off-putting, can be a little jarring if you are one of those randomly selected to get the third degree. I have been there before. I have gotten it. Even for me, it was a little kind of like, what are you implying? What are you saying? But you just roll with it. And eventually they'll smile and wave you through because you're not who they're looking for. You're not doing anything bad. A friend who brought a friend to Israel one time who is originally from Syria. He was born in Syria, but his family immigrated to Canada a long time ago and he grew up in Canada and he was visiting Israel. And obviously, Syria is not friendly to Israel. Believe me, Syria is not friendly to anybody. So obviously, they were going to question him a little bit more. He was from Syria, born in Syria. He's coming to Israel. They're going to check that out. They gave him the third degree, but even he was allowed in. They didn't stop him. They didn't turn him around. They allowed him in. He had a great vacation. He had a wonderful time there. But obviously, if you're coming from Akron, Ohio, believe me, they're not trying to pull you down and strip search you. They might ask you some extra questions. Or they might not, like Whitney said, they ask her some questions about her last name and then smile and wave you through. So I just want to mention that because people sometimes can be off put by that. They're not used to that. Sometimes if you don't have context, it may leave a bad taste in your mouth or bad impression of Israel. It's for a reason and for a very good reason. And it's perfectly normal. That's all I want to say. That's totally fair. And just to put people's minds at ease, one of the things that I started telling myself when I first started traveling at 20 years old in Japan, where I couldn't even read road signs was people dumber than me do this every day. And that might sound kind of arrogant, but it's true. People dumber than me do this every day and they're fine. I can totally handle this. You can totally handle this. So if you start to feel hesitant about going to Israel or really going anywhere in the world, people get dumber than you do this every day and they're totally fine. You'll be fine. So speaking of doing this every day, Whitney, I know when people fly around the U.S., maybe even when you fly to Europe, you may be used to leaving the house in the morning, going to catch your flight, arriving somewhere later in the afternoon, maybe arriving later at night. Maybe even when you go to Europe, you know, leaving at night, arriving in the morning, you sleep on the plane on the way over, you arrive, you wake up, you're refreshed. Israel's kind of not like that, right? It's one of those places where you might leave in the middle of the afternoon, you might arrive and it's like still dark, but you know, you've been on a plane for 200 hours. The timing of flights and arrivals and departures is a different story when it comes to a destination that far away, places like in the Middle East. What do you think about that? I think this is the best reason to schedule in a rest day at the beginning or the end of your trip, just to either recover from or prepare for your flight. Because my flight, my nonstop flight from Dulles to Tel Aviv, left at 1040 at night and arrived at 440 in the afternoon. And then it took me two, two and a half hours to get to my first place that I was going to be staying. So that whole day was shot. Staying up until 1040 at night was difficult for me just to begin with. And then my flight home from Tel Aviv to Dulles left at 1220 a.m. So midnight. And then arrived home at 5 a.m. my time. I was messed up kind of the whole day on my day coming home. So it's nice that I had a whole day in Israel. You know, my flight didn't leave until midnight. But that getting home at 5 a.m. was kind of rough. So you just need to be prepared for that. You need to know that that's just how it is. You don't need to not go to Israel because you don't like the flight times because those are just what the flight times are. And I just feel like that is an important thing to keep in mind when you're looking at flights because something about it is going to look unappealing because it's a really long flight. That is a very, very good point. Scheduling a rest day on your first day in Israel, scheduling a rest day on your first day back is a really, really smart travel strategy when it comes to not only Israel, but this region. 
I know working in Egypt, we have flights arriving at all hours of the night. I mean, literally two, three, four, five a.m. And people think they can arrive into the Middle East after flying all night and just go, 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 go the next day because they're so excited or they think they can handle it or they think, no, I mean, even if you get a good night's sleep and weren't doing so at 30,000 feet, it's still hard to wake up on a couple hours of sleep and just go, even if you're in your home, go work a full day or go out a full day the next day. And honestly, I don't know how you feel about this, Whitney, but I feel like there's something about travel and plane travel, especially that magnifies the fatigue. I feel like oh, if, I, if I do nothing when I'm traveling, if I do nothing all day, I can still be exhausted. Yeah, I totally feel you on that. Flying is exhausting. Part of it is that it's incredibly dehydrating, but you don't realize it. Mm -hmm. So drink your water. Even if you're afraid you're going to have to go to the bathroom every hour, you will not. And again, I mentioned compression socks earlier, like an old lady, but I swear by them, especially if I'm in economy, it is amazing how much better I feel because your blood is not circulating normally when you're in flight. So to have the compression socks be able to help you circulate makes a bigger difference than you think it will. So hydration, compression socks, trying to get some sleep, just trying to rest, even if you don't really sleep. Like I mentioned before, I do not sleep sitting up. I don't really sleep on anything that moves, including trains or cars or anything. But, you know, if I can just rest, like just rest my eyes for a while, it it makes a huge difference when you get to where you're going. Yeah. So don't plan to be going full steam ahead your first day there. Plan yeah. a rest day. And honestly, even if you are the type of person who can go after a full 11, 12 hours on a plane, which means 16, 17, 18 hours, probably a travel total when it comes to going to the airport, waiting at the airport, going to security, getting on the flight, et cetera, et cetera. If you plan a rest day, you can still do something that day. You can still go out and explore. Yeah. But you if, can see how you feel when you get there and you can go to the beach when you get to Tel Aviv, you know, you can do something, but it's better not to schedule something that you don't want to miss. Exactly. If you land going to something important that first day, and then you have to move on from there and you suddenly realize I'm too exhausted, I'm too sleepy, I'm too drained to go out today, then you're going to miss that. But if you didn't plan something and you have the energy when you get there, you can use that day. I think, I mean, I think Whitney and I are of the same mind. Planning a rest day when you get to Israel is a smart travel strategy. And then planning a rest day for when you get back. Don't arrive back on a Sunday night when you have to work on a Monday morning. Come back on you know, Friday or Saturday. Give yourself a day or two to be able to relax or take Monday off if you come back on a Sunday. Yeah. Take Monday off. You deserve it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we thoroughly covered the topic of air travel to Israel, how to get there, airlines to take, opinions. I may have gotten myself banned from an airline or two. I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully that helped you all in terms of planning your trips to Israel, things to consider, logistical considerations, planning considerations, things like that. There's so much more we could have talked about. I think, you know, Whitney mentioned even before we started this, we could talk about airlines and our opinions about airlines and tips on air travel and things like that for days. So this is just consider this the tip of the iceberg, maybe episode one on this topic. We can come back and visit some things later. With that, we will actually let you all go and conclude episode two of the Israel Travel Podcast. So please stick around, join us for the next couple of episodes. This is a new series for us. This is a sort of an experiment for Whitney and me. Hopefully this is helping you. Hopefully our experiment, our brain dump on the topic of travel to and around Israel is helping you because we want Israel Travel Podcast 
to be a resource for you, to be your source for information, insights, advice, reviews, and recommendations about travel to and around Israel. So we hope to see you in the next episodes. Please go to Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, whatever your podcast platform is, and leave us a five-star rating and a nice textual review so that others can find this podcast, can benefit from this information and insight, can help plan their travel to Israel better, like we hope you are doing with this podcast resource. So until then, we will see you in the next episode of the Israel Travel Podcast. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, Whitney. Bye. Bye.